Okay, good morning to everybody. So I was uh, uh, not here last week. Uh, in fact, I think probably a whole section of the, the class, which is my family, uh, <laughs> we were all gone up for Rachel's wedding. And uh, a, a few of y'all who, who have knew Rachel growing up got, got uh, a chance to free your schedule up and come up with us as well. And, and we're thankful for those of you who, who were able to do that, who, who were close to Rachel. Um, meanwhile... I'm there to do this wedding, my daughter. And I love the fella she's marrying. I think he's a marvelous fella. Oh, don't get me wrong. About six or seven hours before the ceremony started, I changed my mind and decided, no, <laughs> he's, just, he's just a marvelous young man. His dad is one of the, the greatest guys I've ever met. And I just love Chris, uh, the father, to death as well. And the father, Chris, and I were going to do the wedding together in tandem. Chris is a, a, a minister, a preacher for a church in Seattle, Washington. And, and he preaches off of his iPad. Now, my daughter had warned me that I was not allowed to do her ceremony with a PowerPoint. <laughs> That's fine. I typically do do the, the, the weddings that I, I do, and, and by and large, I don't do many anymore, but the, the ones that I do, I typically use a Bible, okay? And I write my stuff down, and I have my notes. Well, Chris preaches off of an iPad. So what Chris did is Chris did this iPad of the, the wedding. Now, I don't know if you've got an iPad. This is an iPad mini, and I had my iPad mini. So I thought, well, hey, Chris has done this and put it on an iPad, the wedding ceremony. I'll just take my iPad mini, and I'll do it with him. It was pretty cool. So I walk Rachel down the aisle. Chris is already down there with the groom. Chris says, who gives uh, uh, this uh, woman to be wed to this man? Uh, I said, uh, uh, her family. And, and then I said, uh, uh you know, I give her to Josh, and then I just walk right up, stand next to Chris, because we're going to do the wedding. And I've got, I had, walking down the aisle, I had Rachel on one arm, and I had my iPad mini on the other, so I could do the wedding. Well, I don't know how many of you have ever performed the wedding for one of your daughters before, but it's a different experience. You see this group of people. You've got your family. All of her sisters are bridesmaids. So you have three weepy girls next to you. Uh, Will's a groomsman. So you've got your son over there. You're looking out at the families and all of the, the friends and all of the people. And you realize that you're turning a corner. And you've got this wedding in front of you on this iPad and I don't know how many of you have done an iPad before, but it was a really marvelous PDF that had been sent to me from Chris of, of, and it had, you know, the giving of the bride and then Chris said a prayer and then I talked about God's blessing and God's presence. And then Chris did this and we talked about what we love about our, our daughter and, and, and son and, and we talked about, and then we had this list of five things that Rachel had written that she loved about Josh and a list of five things that Josh had written that he loved about Rachel and we were going to go back and forth on them and I'm, I'm up there and I'm doing this and I had opened the PDF from Chris and just left it open on my iPad so that when I got up there, I don't have to just start looking for it, right? Do you see that little button? Whoops, that little button right up there that says done? If you accidentally touch that with your thumb in the middle of a wedding ceremony, the entire screen disappears. And you are about to talk about the five things your daughter loves about this fella that your daughter's written in her own hand. You're about to read the vows that your daughter has written by her own hand. And it's all disappeared. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, I can think of three things pretty lovable about Josh, but I can't come up with five. I'm joking. I'm thinking, what am I going to do? I've just deleted the wedding ceremony. So I'm up there 
flipping through the emails trying to find it during the part Chris is talking. And I'm trying to do it discreetly, like this. Gracie is to my right, and she turns from weepy, oh, my little sister's getting married to, what is dad doing? Is he doing his emails during the wedding? And I'm flipping, and she's like, dad, dad. I wasn't playing Candy Crush. I was looking. I was looking for the thing, and I can't find it. So I think, well, it's coming up. It's my turn again. I'm just going to grab Chris's. But what if he wonders, why is he grabbing my iPad? So I've got to figure out a way to tell him in code, I'm going to grab your iPad now, free it up without hitting the done button in the corner. So here was my code. Okay, I've just accidentally deleted the wedding service on my iPad, so Chris, I need yours. (laughs) It's the best code I could come up with. I was nervous, okay? So uh, uh, I give it from Chris, and and we go back and forth with the iPad, and, and I learned something here. Sometimes you're done before you're actually done. And that's what happened for me there. And I thought, well, this is kind of appropriate for us this morning because we're still looking. Steve Trammell did, Stephen Trammell, Pastor Stephen did such a great job last week with First Thessalonians. But this week we're going to look at the book we call Second Thessalonians. And, and as Pastor Stephen explained last week, you know, he, his was, they were on their little mini vacation and, and Austin got sick and had to come back. And uh, uh, by the way, kudos to our internet people for getting that posted so I could listen to Stephen's uh, teaching this week. He did a great job. But um, uh, I thought, man, I don't know who was in worse situation. But I got done with that wedding before I was done. And the same thing happened with Paul and Thessalonica. Paul had been there for somewhere around 21 days, three Sabbaths he was able to present. And Paul had to be hustled out of town because of Jewish persecution. So he never got a chance to really get the church on the footing he wanted. He never really had a chance to tell the church the things that he wanted to tell the church. He kept thinking he'd get to go back, but he wasn't able to. He sent Timothy back. But Paul was not able to finish what he started. Timothy tells Paul what's happened at the church. Paul gets news from the church while Paul's in Corinth for a year and a half. And so what Paul does while he's in Corinth is he writes two letters to the Christians in Thessalonica. Now, it's an interesting point that he writes two letters. Do you know what we call them? First and second Thessalonians. Okay? It's a pretty good name. Today we're going to consider pros thecalonikes B. That's what it would show in the Greek as the title. But that's a title the early church put on the letter. It's not Paul's title. That's just, here, go to the Elmo for a moment. That's just the title that you're going to get if you're reading your Greek New Testament. Pros means to the Thessalonians. B, as opposed to 1 Thessalonians, which is to the Thessalonians. You want to guess? A. To the Thessalonians, A. So to the Thessalonians, B. What we would call, if we go back to the PowerPoint, what we would call Second Thessalonians. Now, I was going to, okay, sorry, I don't mean to, I'm keeping the booth alert as we jockey back and forth. I want to show you something on the index of the Bible. But this Bible is Gracie's. And she has a dog. And so the index is somewhere in these little pages. And the thing really starts humming. Whoops, there's some more doggy bite. Right around Genesis 14. And I didn't realize that till I got up here. So who's got a Bible I can borrow? Steve? (laughs) 
you know, I am proud. I, when I first saw it, I thought I've, we've raised a daughter, Becky, who could sink her teeth into God's word. But it turned out to be just her dog that does. So we get Steve's Bible and we put the table of contents up here. Now, originally, our New Testament was written, our Old Testament written as scrolls. Our New Testament are written as some scrolls. The Gospels were probably first written on scrolls, parchment scrolls. But Paul's letters very easily could have just been on parchment that was folded up. Didn't have, or rolled up. But they weren't formal scrolls. Somewhere in time, the church collected Paul's letters together. And when they collected the letters together, they thought instead of walking around with all of these letters in our togas, maybe what we should do is put them together on one scroll. We'll have a scroll of Paul's letters. And so they did so. We don't know when. Probably around 70, 80, 90 A.D. We don't know for sure. But this collection of Paul's letters is put together and it might have started with someone who just had six or seven of them. And then there were a couple more over here and a couple more over there. Some scholars think that the Corinthian letters, which we'll study, God willing, in due time, were more than just two that were combined into two to fit the scrolls better. We'll discuss whether or not that's valid. The point is, then those scrolls get put into books later. The collection of Paul's letter gets put into the books that become our Bible. By the early church, as the church is putting all of the books together. This is done in the 200, 300 A.D. So the church at that point in time has to decide... What order are we going to put these in? And wouldn't it be helpful? Oh, by the way, scholars readily say that the reason society moved, Western civilization, moved from writing on scrolls to books, they were called codexes, is because of the Christian church. Because the Christian church used scripture so much and wanted to be able to find things readily. And it's a whole lot easier to find something like this than it is to have a 22-foot scroll that you unroll because you got to get to the page over here. And so the church wanted it in a form where they could readily read and access it. And to do so, what the church needed to do also is organize it. So the church put together the Jewish scriptures first. We call it the Old Testament. Where do we get that name from? A lawyer. Tertullian in church history. A lawyer named Tertullian referred to it as the Old Covenant or Testament and the New Covenant or Testament for the church's writings. So we have the Jewish scriptures first, and then we have the church's scriptures. Now the question is, what order are we going to put the church's scriptures in? So the early people, we don't know how they did this or why they did this. We're not even sure who did it. We live in the 2000s, the 21st century. This was done a long, long time ago. And whoever did it knew what was important was the scripture, not them. You know, as David was talking this morning in, in Christian maturity, you hit this point where all of a sudden, you not all of a sudden, but gradually you come to realize less and less of who you are individually and more and more of what God is able to do in you, through you, and by you. And whoever put this together, or the church council that did, or whomever was involved, wasn't concerned about writing up for posterity what they were doing. They were concerned about securing for posterity through the Holy Spirit the Word of God. So it makes sense that we're not going to have someone who says, let me tell you how smart I was as I did this. Because that's not their concern. But it's very sensible what's happened here in the, in the order of the New Testament Scripture. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The first four books are the Gospels. And there is an indication that perhaps this is the order the early church thought they were written in. 
But most scholars recognize they weren't written in this order. It was probably Mark first, and then Matthew, then Luke and John. There are lots of different permutations there. So there they are. And then we have the history of the church. And that's the book of Acts. After the book of Acts, the church very clearly gathered together all of Paul's writings that they had, that they considered authoritative scripture. And those would have been the writings that are on a Paul scroll. And so you have the writings of Paul. It's divided into two groups. Look carefully. See if you can figure out what the division is. You have Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon. Do you see a division? Churches are first, letters to the individuals are second. So Romans, church at Rome, church at Corinth, the churches in Galatia, the church at Ephesus, the church at Philippi, Colossae, Thessalonica, then the letters to the individuals, to Timothy, to Titus, to Philemon. After that, the church included the other writings, grouping Peter's together and John's together, the writing of Jude, and finally, closing the Bible with the Revelation, which is the book of, of Second Coming. So the church put it together this way. But Paul never put a title on his letters like this. Paul's letters, for example, thank you, Stephen, I'm through the dog bite part. <clears throat> so Paul's letter, for example, to the Thessalonians that we call Second Thessalonians, just begins very simply, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul begins that way without a title. Now, scholars are uncertain whether the book we call 1 Thessalonians was written first or whether the book we call 2 Thessalonians was written first. We assume, because we're reading it in the Bible, and 1 Thessalonians is listed first, that that must be the first one written. And I think it probably was. But the order of Paul's books, scholars aren't quite sure why they're in the order they're in. They're not in chronological order. If you look at Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians and Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, the books to the churches, that's not chronological order. Galatians was written first, not Romans. Romans was written before Corinthians. But Corinthians is written after Thessalonians. So the order is not by date. How are they put in this order? Scholars are uncertain. One theory is the bigger letters are at the front and they get smaller and smaller to the end. And that's true with one little exception. So maybe it was done by size. Maybe it was done by importance of the city. Because Rome was certainly the most important city. And then Corinth arguably was the most important city for the early church. So you've got Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Galatians, is that more important than Ephesians and Ephesus? Maybe that breaks down there too. Scholars debate it. The bottom line is, is... Think about these things. It doesn't change your faith, but it's important that you know where your Bible comes from. It's important that you understand how these things are put together. And so we've got Second Thessalonians, and we should read it recognizing it was written about the same time as First Thessalonians. Probably written afterwards, but we're not certain. Sometimes it's interesting to read it as if it was written first, because it'll add a little bit of extra buzz to some of what we see. Now, let's look at it together for just a little bit. We're going to go through the text itself and just highlight a couple of things. And, and uh, uh, then we'll be done bef- after we press the done button, I hope. <clears throat> if we look at how it starts, Paul starts out Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. 
Now, some of you astute folks are going to be looking at that, and you're going to be saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I remember Acts 17, when Paul is in Corinth with those fellas. According to Luke, in Acts 17, because we talked about this before I left. Where is it? Now, 17.4, here it is. Some of them, this is in Thessalonica, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas? Or Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. It's the difference between, in, in Greek, if we turn the Greek letters into English letters, it's the difference between Silas is just basically S-I-L-A-S in the Greek. Silvanus is S-I-L, but it's got an O-U, N-A-S. So you've got this little insertion of an O-U-N as we would, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's, I wrote it. See, never mind. I do this all the time. That's a, that's the Greek letter N is written like an English V. So that's a Greek N. So there, make it that. So O-U-N is inserted in the Greek. Were these two different fellows? No. That's the difference between Will and William. Paul writes with the more formal name. Luke uses the buddy name, which is interesting. So Paul's writing, and for Paul, it's a serious letter, and Paul always seems to use the formal name. We already saw it when, when he wrote about Aquila and Priscilla. We see the same thing here, because Paul will call her Priscilla instead of Prisca. Um, that Luke used. So, Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God, look at this, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, our temptation, when we read Scripture and study, is to read through things we already know pretty quickly. We don't pause. And I want us to pause on this for a moment. Paul says, God, our Father. Patrihemon in the Greek. God, our Father. And there are two things that this signals out to us. And this is just an example of how if we pause and chew on Scripture, it starts unfolding uh, layers like an onion. Except uh, it's not, doesn't make you cry as readily. It can make you cry, but. Out of joy sometimes. Anyway, the, the, you peel back the layers. Our father immediately includes Paul with that church that he had to leave before he was done. It's a very inclusive word. It's not, okay, you've got God, I've got God, we've got God, da, 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 da. It's, it got, Paul starts out and says, God, our father. Paul's not with them physically, but spiritually, Paul's saying, we're all one family. God is our Father, whether I'm in Thessalonica with you or whether I've been pulled away. So you've got that idea. The second idea that's found here, that's beautiful to me, is the church from its earliest days that we've got, from the very earliest writings of the church, the Didache, the church was praying the Lord's Prayer three times a day, teaching the new members of the church to do the same thing. Morning, noon, and night. Pray the Lord's Prayer. How does the Lord's Prayer begin? Our Father, who art in heaven. And so Paul's using a phrase that is a phrase that that church and every one of its people would know. It is our Father, who is in heaven. So Paul writes to the church... In in of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's marvelous. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a typical Greek letter, and we're pausing on this and we're going into some more detail because ultimately this class is about learning more and more and more we can about the New Testament. We're trying to unfold it and learn about it 
as well as figure out how it applies and changes our lives. We're exploring as well as being convicted. So we need to know that in a typical letter of the day, a typical letter would begin very much like Thessalonians. A typical letter would begin with who it was to, almost like an email does today, from. And then there's a reference line in our emails today. So for Paul, it is a little bit opposite. It starts out with the from, and then it's got the to. And then it's got, not a reference, but it's got an introduction. Subject, we could call it maybe. But it's it's just basically this idea of introduction. So it's from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. It's to the church in our Father. Okay? So it's to the church in our Father. And then his intro is grace and peace. That's like uh, we today typically will start a letter with dear. Dear, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. Grace and peace was a very standard introduction. But Paul doesn't use it in the standard way. Every Thessalonian, Thessalonian who had read a letter would have had probably grace and peace at the start or something similar. But when they get Paul's letter, they get it this way. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Paul recognizes and wants them to understand. He doesn't just give them a formal greeting. He wants them to have the grace and to have the peace that comes only from God. It's a different kind of grace. It's a different kind of peace than the world could ever have. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we keep going and look at this just a little bit more, and we won't get too bogged down. I'm not going verse by verse, except at the beginning to explain how some of this works. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Paul knew their faith was growing because he could see it reflected in the way they treated each other. If you were a guest this morning, the reason we want to greet you when you're here is out of the love that flows from God that changes who we are and how we see you. If you don't have a list of people you're praying for on a daily basis to know the Lord, I would urge you to write down a list. If God just puts one or two or three or four people on your heart, write it down and stare at it every day and lift them up by name to the Lord. And ask the Lord to, to touch them. And you'll find you're saying things like, you know, after you do this, I mean, you got a choice. You can either play pray um, without much meaning. Okay, God, today would you please bring to faith A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, nah, don't worry about T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z. Or you can find yourself trying to pray more deliberately. God, A is really on my heart. And it's so important that you put someone in A's life in a divine encounter, an intervention to speak faith to them? Would you put someone in B's life that, that says something to them that changes how they perceive you and, and moves them towards faith? Would you call them through the preaching of the gospel? As David said, the, the, the call is made this morning. Would you do that, please, Lord? And I want to tell you what happens. You start praying like that. It may take a day. It may take a week. It may take a month. It may take a year. But somewhere it's going to click into your brain. Maybe while I'm doing this, Steve Taylor's praying for person B. 
And I'm around person B all the time. Why am I not the divine encounter for person B? Why, why am I not speaking faith into the lives of the people I meet? Why am I not reaching out? Why am I not showing love in that way? And it will change who you are as you begun, begin to, to, to grow in that process of, of being Christ-like. Uh, David was talking about this morning. Fits in very well. I guess that's why it's fresh on my brain. But that's what Paul's saying. He says, your faith is growing abundantly because I see the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. When I see the way you care more about other people, I know God is at work in your life transforming who you are. And it's a splendid way to start the letter. So Paul says, so we ourselves, we brag about you. They use the word boast because they're not Texans translating this. But this is brag. Paul says, we brag about you in the churches of God because of your steadfastness, your faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions you're enduring. Your steadfastness, hupomone in the in the Greek, um, uh, You may get tired of Greek in this class. I'm sorry. I worked hard to learn that stuff, so we have to use it. Okay? So, steadfastness is translated... Let me keep this where I've got it. Hoop. um, Well, in English, we would use the letter H to show the rough breathing. But it's H-U-P-O-M-O-N, long E. Hoopomone. In Greek, if you're trying to learn your Greek, it's hoopo... Um, now, you might be thinking that's a song by Tommy James and the Shondells. Here she comes down, singing, it's not. It means, hoopo means under. This part is under. And under. <laughs> under. We get the word endure from it. It's a patient endurance. It's this idea that that you can translate it fortitude or perseverance. It's the idea that, hey, things are bad. I've got affliction. It's not good. But I know who is behind this. It's Psalm 46 that David used this morning. I cry to the Lord, from whence cometh my help? The the, the, the whole... All right, we got to go to the PowerPoint for a minute. Um, I'm behind a couple of slides because I got carried away, so let me click through a little bit for a moment. There, we'll start here. Why does God even allow suffering? It's a question we often ask. Um, uh, it is a question that's sensitive to people. Bart Ehrman says he lost his faith over an inability to answer that question. He doesn't think a just God would allow suffering. It's a very complicated question. Books are written on it. Lectures, they're given exhaustively on it. I can't tell you in one minute why God allows suffering. But I want to talk to you about it nonetheless. Suffering happens in this world because this is not a perfect world. This is not the world the way God made it to be. That's the lesson of the Garden of Eden story. This is a world that's the fruit of rebellion against God. And rebellion against God produces suffering. And we're born into a world of suffering. Why does God allow it to be? Because God created us with an ability to make choices. And when the choice was made to rebel against God, the result is suffering just as surely as if I make a choice to stick my hand in a fire, the result will be a burn. That's the way it is. And God's not a God who can change. He's perfect. And by definition, perfection, if it changed, would not be the same. So God can't change. He's got a world that can and that has. 
And so we live in a world that's under a curse. We live in a world that's broken. We live in a world that has rebellion at its heart. And we live amongst people that are rebellious people. And rebellion against God produces suffering. Why does God allow it? The promise is that he doesn't. We're caught up in a time vortex of seeing it right now. But the whole purpose of the cross is that God will take the suffering to himself and do whatever it takes to make sure that there is an eternity where there are no tears. But in the meanwhile, we live in a tragic world where we see day by day the suffering that rebellion from God brings. And it's tough. And while Bart Ehrman and others may want to say, well, if there was a kind God, he would just eliminate it all right now and not wait till the end. Well, that's not the end. That'll be the right now when it happens. The end doesn't come. It's called eternity. Okay? But to the believer, the amazing thing is what God does with suffering. He does not allow you to suffer and he does not allow me to suffer needlessly. The suffering is not just something horrible that's happening that nothing good can come from. Because God is able to work in the suffering to produce in us greater faithfulness and greater the character and nature of Jesus. Suffering is the potter's wheel. If you see my sister throw pots where sometimes she has to take the knife and cut off part of the pot to make it what it needs to be. She molds it. She shapes it. She presses it. She moves it. But it produces the vessel fit for use. One of my favorite theologians, now deceased, But if you could ever get any commentary written by him, any book written by him, his book, The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, should be on everyone's shelf. If I could urge you to do one thing in your Bible study that would transform your life, it would be to get a Bible. I mean, this is so... I I didn't think to put this in the PowerPoint. I should have. Um, We'll go right back to the PowerPoint, but go here for a moment. His name is Leon Morris. Apostolic apostolic preaching whoops apostolic preaching of the cross it's very dense it's very good you get that book and you start on page one and you read every page and every scripture it references you turn to you that scripture in your bible and you make a note of what point leon morris is making i did that 35 years ago, and it changed my life. It will change yours. But go back to the PowerPoint, please. Here's what Leon Morris said about suffering. He said, the New Testament does not look on suffering in quite the same way as most modern people. To us, suffering is an evil in itself, something to be avoided at all costs. Faith is accordingly... Not some fragile thing to be kept in some kind of spiritual cotton wool insulated from all shocks. Faith is robust. It's to be manifested in the fires of trouble, in the furnace of affliction. That's what faith does. Faith takes suffering and tribulation and transforms it into something that produces steadfastness. Hupomone in the Greek. A fortitude, and it's a witness to the world. Yes, I'm going through suffering. And yes, I don't belittle it. And yes, I don't say, oh, I'm so sorry that they died. It was God's will for them to die. No, it wasn't God's will for them to die. God made them to live forever. They die because there's sickness and disease, and it's a rebellious world, and it's a bad world in so many ways. But God will redeem it. And in the midst of the suffering, he gives me the strength, he gives me the patience, he gives me the endurance and the fortitude because I see what's coming at the end. 
And so I can stand up in the middle of the suffering by His grace and through His strength. That's the testimony not only to the world, but that's what molds and shapes us into believers in Him and His purposes and not simply what we want today and what makes us happy. Sorry, I quit teaching, went to preaching. So, we have sound, and I'm not sure it's working. We're going to go back. I didn't warn the people back there. You didn't pull the sound. Do you think we have sound? You think it'll work? Okay, let me tell you something. When I was in uh, college in Nashville, um, uh, back in the early 80s, late 70s, whatever it was, um, there was a Christian coffee house called Koinonia where uh, the, some Christian bands from Belmont and other places would come and play. And there was a Christian band called Dogwood. And they went to church with us, and, and they were uh, great, great people. Uh, Steve and Annie Chapman, uh, uh, Annie didn't sing with them, but Steve Chapman was one of them. Um, they had a song that was a wonderful song that talked about how you endure tribulation in this way. And it's the kind of thing, I can't find it on a CD, because it's just one of these songs that was back 35 years ago. And I'm sure it's on some old record somewhere, but... Who's got a record player? My kids don't even know what they are. So I found out through the wonders of the internet that there was a Koinonia coffee house reunion that was held where some of the bands that used to play when I was in college all got back together as old geezers and played again. This happened about four years ago. And sure enough, this band Dogwood got back together and they played this song. This is one of those songs that's in the back of my brain because it's I've lived by this song. Different phrases in this song have been stuck in my brain. But I like what this song says about it. I've discovered this on YouTube, so I'm playing it for you. Are you ready? All right, let's try it again. <laughs> Kind of Nashville sound, bluegrassy. Are you weary and well doing, walking on the road to New Jerusalem? And are you hoping and praying, looking at any minute for the Lord to come? And do you see a lot of looking places? Lay down, take rest. But if you do, take a look at all of the faces there. Their sadness will tell you that it's best to keep on walking. You don't know how far you've come, keep on walking. For all you know, it may be done, and the Father. Might be standing up right now to give a call. End it all. So keep on walking. Now if you need a feeling to keep you on that road you started traveling on. You're gonna have some trouble learning that it's faith that'll keep you moving on. And then the Lord, He'll start you off from sin. But sometimes you have to take a stand. But standing's not another word for quitting. No, it's just taking a tighter hold on His hand. So keep on walking. You don't know how far you've come. Keep on walking. For all you know, it may be done. And the Father might be standing up right now to give the call. To end it all. So keep on walking. And you don't know how far you've come. Keep on walking. For all you know, it may be 
Those songs that just just uh, sticks in your brain. You. So you got to go on YouTube to download it. I don't know how else to get it, but you can go on YouTube. You can download it. I really like the song, and it fits in so well with Second Thessalonians, and uh, because the Thessalonians, you know, Paul in one voice he says, "Look, you need a steadfastness. You need a patient endurance. But you get that because you know the Lord is going to come back, and He will make everything right." And whatever it is that's caused your suffering, justice will be done. And we don't know when. And we, we, we don't... Which brings up another point. Next week, I will not be here. I try never to miss this class. But I committed a long time ago to preaching at another church that's uh, in Timbuktu or Copperfield or somewhere. Um <laughs> And so Jared will be preaching next week, and he's going to talk some about eschatology and different views of the Lord's coming back. Because Paul brings that subject up. It's a natural transformation in his writing. You don't know what's going on. You do know, though, that the Lord will end this right. So you keep on walking. And you do it with a steadfastness and a patient endurance. Because you don't, God doesn't accidentally hit the done button and delete something. It's not done until it's done. But it will one day be done. And our job is to keep walking in the meantime. Praying and growing to be like Jesus in the way we do our, live our lives. So with that, we'll go points for homes. Um, whoops. Oh, I meant to delete all these slides. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's the secret way I did all of the words. Boom, 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 boom. boom. Oh, no, mercy, 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 mercy. Oh, I really messed up radically. Okay, there. Oh, ooh. Uh, we have points for home somewhere. Ha! Points for home. Whoa, I've gone points for got a little carried away. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I really like that. I love that, that just that one word, our, hamon in the Greek, just that one word. The way Paul relates it to us and pulls us into it. He's the same Father for you and me that he was for Paul and is for Paul and is for us. And will be for Paul and will be for us. Our Father. And so it makes me want to change the way I live. I want to plug into others. I want to be part of expressing this. God is our Father. Heaven forbid I try Lone Ranger Christianity. That's an immature Christianity. Christianity calls us to be part of community. Part of our. And that's what we need to look to do. And once we start doing that, it's amazing what will happen as God gets us outside of ourselves. Second point for home. Paul talked about your steadfastness and your faith in all the persecutions and all the afflictions you're enduring. I don't know where you are and what's going on in your life, but I can almost rest assured that everybody's got some degree of concerns because we're all living in this rebellious fallen world that by definition produces suffering and affliction. And if you don't have it today, it's still in your heart and your mind because you've had it before. And you'll have it again. It's the nature of things. And what I am pledged to do in my life is patiently endure those difficulties, trusting in the Lord. I will just keep on walking. Oh, the temptation might be to sit down. The temptation might be to take a break. The temptation might be just to check out. But I will rest in the Lord knowing that He will lead me forth holding my hand tightly. I don't walk through anything alone and neither do you. Final point for home. Didn't have time to get to this, but some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. I love Paul saying that. Um, 
Paul was very convicted that just because you're patiently enduring and just because you know the Lord's coming back, it doesn't discharge you from living responsibly day to day. It should invigorate you to live responsibly day to day. I'd love to just sit back and say, hey, the Lord's coming back. I don't need to worry about this. And I don't need to worry about it. But it doesn't mean that I don't need to be involved. Because the Lord is coming back. And so I can trust that if I'm involved and I'm seeking His will and I'm doing His will as I'm involved, His hand is going to be in this for good. It's a call to action. I work for the Lord. So I want to get out there and do it. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, every day you seem to be there to open our eyes more fully. To better understand you, to better understand ourselves, to better understand this world. And I pray that through this lesson you'll do that for those that, that are listening here, on the internet, wherever they may hear it. Lord, that, that the message of your faithfulness, of your steadfast love, will affirm and produce in us a steadfast faith, making us vessels fit for your purposes, that we would walk in them and do your work and busy ourselves about your business, our Father. In heaven. So that your will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that your kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. So that your name will be declared holy and righteous on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we want to be about. Through our Lord Jesus we pray. So be it. Amen.